When my wife Karen decided to go back to grad school, we knew it would be hard. She was already working a part-time job, and now she'd be going to these three-hour classes in the evenings, and then studying all weekend. And I was working a full-time job, and but I was going to take on extra part-time work to try to help pay for the tuition. And our kids were six and four, so a lot of nights at the Miller House was Dad shoving another tombstone pizza into the oven, <laughs> and yet. We knew it would be hard, but we were not ready for what we had not planned on. Shortly after Karen started that program, her grandmother went into hospice, and we were with her as she took her last breath. And then two months later, completely unexpectedly, my dad had a massive heart attack and died. Karen and I were sitting at his funeral. While her mom was at the doctor getting the diagnosis, you have cancer. Two months after that, what was supposed to be our family reunion was a huddled vigil in a hospital waiting room as my brother, who'd just been diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, had a nine-hour spinal surgery. Then Karen's grandfather died. Then her other grandfather died. If you've lost track, that was four deaths. And two life-threatening diagnoses in just over a year. We were shell-shocked, and our kids were like, "Do we have to go to a funeral again?" And I'm trying to be the strong parent for them and help them through this. And everything in me was going, "Do we have to go to a funeral again?" Up to that point in my life, I honestly had not given much thought to death. I hadn't really reflected on is there anything after death. But when you lose a loved one, whether you want to be or not, it forces you for that moment to become a philosopher. Whether you have a religious bone in your body, at least right then, it, it makes you into a theologian. Because you have to wonder, it, this loved one that I've just lost—is there anything that continues on for them? Is there any meaningful way in which their life, their personality, all that's been so special to me, continues, or is it just a few old sweaters hanging in the closet and memories? Which is it? And as important as that question is, I feel like in our culture we don't have many safe places to talk about that. I feel like there's not really a way to have that conversation in some sort of safe and reasonable way. And I hope that this morning could maybe become part of that for you. What I want to do this morning is lay out three. Popular views of the afterlife in our culture. Lay them out just as fairly as I can, one next to the other, and then ask these two important questions: Do they pass the heart test? Is there anything in that view of the afterlife that would comfort you, that would comfort me at the graveside? And even more important, do those views pass the head test? Are they true? Is there any reason to believe in them apart from some assumption, some wishful or magical thinking? 
We need to know this, friends. Oh, I hope it's a long time before you have to stand at the graveside again. But I can say with a high degree of confidence you will. What will be your view of the afterlife? And each one of us, someday, we're no longer going to be the ones standing there. We're going to be the ones lying down, not moving, and having people say really nice things about us. And so is there a more important question that you and I could reflect on between now and that moment than what is my view of the afterlife and could it pass both the heart test and the head test? Let's look at that together. Well, the first view that is so common in our culture is this. What happens after death? Well, your life is going on and you're doing all this stuff, your activity, and then boom, you die. And then, nothing. Absolute nothing. I call this the poof view of the afterlife. Rolling Stone interviewed Natalie Portman, the gifted actress. She's probably best known for her role as Queen Amidala in the Star Wars movies. And for some reason, the interviewer that day decided to ask her, what's your take on the afterlife? And Natalie said, I don't believe in that. I believe this is it. Well, it's, it's a view that has a long tradition. The, the great Greek philosopher Epicurus said the same thing. He said, when you die, there's nothing. And so therefore, there's no sensation, and therefore, there's nothing to fear. That was his view. And so many, many people in our day have, have ascribed to that view, and they've said, when your EEG flatlines, it's boom, 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 and then annihilation. Poof. Well, there's a second view that you may hear or have worked with, and that is a view that I'll call the particles view. What do I mean by that? Well, this view teaches that you do continue on in some sense. It's not in a personal way, but it's in an impersonal way. You join the cosmic flow of the universe. This also has a, a long tradition. It was held by the Stoics, the ancient Greek philosophical school. And let me see if I can illustrate it to you with this bottle of water. Suppose this is you. And at death, what happens, according to the particle's view, is that the lid gets taken off and you get dumped out into the ocean. Are you still there? Well, not in a personal sense, but maybe in an impersonal one because your energy has become part of the circle of life. And cue the animated hyenas and lions, okay? <laughs> And even some people will go to the extent that they'll say it in a physical way where, yeah, your, your remains actually decompose, but in that very spot, flowers will push up. And so you have nothing to fear because it's all so natural. Now, third view I want to mention, I'll tell you the name of it in a moment, is the Christian view. And because of Christianity's historic influence on our culture, it also is prevalent in the conversation. And the Christian view, unlike these first two views, is not 
so based or originated out of philosophy. It came out of history. It came out of a surprising and wholly unexpected event in a real place, Jerusalem, in a real time, A.D. 30, that you can date, you can go there. Let's look at it together. Because you need to understand, where did this even come from, this third view, this Christian view? If you look in John 20, at verse 1. John recalls that early on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, while it was still dark, the sun hasn't even really completely come up, Mary Magdalene went to Jesus' tomb. Now the Bible tells us that Mary Magdalene had been in the grip of dark and compulsive powers, and Jesus had set her free from those. And friends, if any of you have ever had a dark and compulsive power in your life, you know what a relief it is, or what a relief it would be to be set free from that. And that was her experience with Jesus. And so she can't wait two days after the burial to get back to the graveside and pay him honor. And so she's there as soon as she can. But what does she see? The stone, the doorway over the kind of cave in which Jesus' body had been buried, has been removed from the entrance. It would be like you and me going to the cemetery where we'd just been two days earlier and, and all of the newly placed sod has been torn away. And all of the loose soil that hasn't even t- been tamped down yet has all been dug out and mounded around the grave. And you're like, what happened? And you look with horror down into the pit and you can see that the coffin has been busted open and your loved one's been taken away. And you go, what What happened? Who would be so crazy as to do that? There was nothing even there to take. What were they doing? And that's exactly what happens to Mary. She's like, I can't figure it out. And it says, verse 2, that she went immediately running for help to Peter and to John and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. I have no idea what happened to him. It was a historic event. Turn to verse 14. She goes back and she's weeping there. Isn't it enough? I have this grief, and now someone would have the gall to move the body? And, and it says in verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. It's still dark out. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. She's like, oh, these stupid cemetery workers. Why do they think this has to be part of their routine maintenance? And then she hears this. She turns back around. She's weeping, and she hears in her ear, Mary. Mary. She's like, wait, how does that cemetery worker know who I am? Wait. I've heard that voice before, and she turns around, and he's there, and she says, teacher. And all of a sudden, she realizes that after the grave, it's it's not nothing, it's something. It's not impersonal, it's personal. It is personal life. And it's even better than that, because this personal life knows her and calls her by name with care. It's personal life and love. That is the Christian view of the afterlife. And it's even better than that. The Christian view is that Jesus' body is the prototype, the working prototype for your resurrection body. You can know personal life and love.
Tomorrow's the Boston Marathon. A woman in our church is actually flying out this afternoon, and she's going to run it in the morning. And I, I can't help this week thinking, as I'm sure you have too, back to last year's terrible events at the marathon. When two pressure cooker bombs exploded near the finish line, killing three people and injuring 264 people. And one of the saddest stories to come out of the marathon and the injuries that happened that day was for a woman named Adrienne Hazlitt Davis. Maybe some of you have followed her story. She lost her, her left leg right about mid-calf in the injuries sustained in the bombing. And what made that so poignant and tragic is she's a professional dancer. And while she was in the rehab hospital, she was visited there by a professor from MIT who himself is a double amputee. And he was inspired by her case to continue and press further than he ever had in the research, and he built for her a bionic leg with biomechanical sensors so that she could feel the floor and feel the pressure just right. And if you saw this on YouTube just about a month ago at a conference in Vancouver, she danced the rumba. It blew me away. And now, God forbid, if there's another amputee who's lying in bed wondering, will I ever stand again? Will I ever be able to dance with my loved one again? I can say, yes, you can. There's a working prototype that proves it. But this prototype is not even as good as Jesus's because this one is honestly as amazing as it is. It's not as good as what Adrian Hazlitt Davis had the first time. But what Jesus gives you in your afterlife, if you're his follower, is something even better. Your new body will be glorious and immortal and strong. Now let's look. How do these views pass the heart test? And here's what I mean by that. Because of my work, I spend more time in cemeteries than most. I was deeply affected by a service there. A mom was carrying a baby late into the pregnancy, and the child died. And given her place in life, this was probably the last time she would conceive. So I walked with her and her husband out to the graveside there at Wheaton Cemetery, and there was a tiny white casket. And the clay had been dug up out of the ground, and, and the workers had laid some astroturf over it to try to pretty it up. It was wintertime, and there was maybe about an inch of snow and slush on the ground. And when we finished that service, and everyone was supposed to walk back to their cars, the mom did not move. She could not move. And she was dressed like you would expect. She had on dark hose and, and a formal gray wool skirt. And she threw herself down in the slush on her knees and wrapped her arms around that tiny casket and sobbed and would not let go. Now what does your view of the afterlife say to her? Does it offer anything of comfort? Can we consider that? together. The poof view says, here's, here's the comfort I hold out to you. Your child feels nothing. There's no pain. Well, I suppose that if the child had been in intense pain, 
That might be some small drop of sugar on the very bitter pill that says there's total annihilation. This child of your love, this child of your promise, this child who was loved, wanted, and named is nothing. Is that comforting to you? Or the particle's view says, cheer up. It's so natural. It's just part of the circle of life. Does that restore your spirit and help you get up the next morning? And the Christian view says on the basis of a proven historical event, you will see your daughter again. You will live. You will call her by name and you'll be united. You'll know personal life and love. That passes the heart test. Oh yeah, there is no religion. There is no faith. There is no philosophy. There is no worldview that comes anywhere close to offering what the Christian teaching offers, which is you do not have to know fear. You can know hope. Praise God, it passes the heart test. But here's the really important question, is it not? Can it pass the head test? Because as comforting as it is, it means nothing if it's not true. If you have a, a lump and you're very concerned about that, of course, and you go to your doctor and, and you get some tests run and then you meet with the doctor to hear what, how, how did the scans come back and the doctor, the most positive possible comforting words that the doctor could utter would be, don't worry, you don't have cancer. You'd walk out of there like a new person. But you know what? That comfort means nothing unless the scans are really clear. Now, what is it for this Christian teaching? I find that the early disciples, as you read the passages in the Bible there, and people today, they all come in different ways to this conclusion. But most of them, it's some combination of evidence and encounter. Evidence and encounter. What is the evidence? The evidence is this. Overwhelming historical evidence. If CNN had been there, they would have carried it live, the breaking story. Everyone in Jerusalem knew about it. Everyone in the Roman Empire knew about it. There are at least 15 occasions where Jesus, after he died, came back and was with people. And not in some fleeting or transitory moment like, oh, I think I saw Elvis at a gas station. In one case, he made breakfast and ate breakfast with seven other people. How long does that take? Another time, because his, his followers thought he's a ghost and he couldn't put it together, he said, no, I'm back. Do you have anything here I could eat just to prove it to you? And he takes some fish and eats it to see. It's, it's, not, it's not some ghosty thing. It's a real resurrected body. Another time, and psychologists will tell you, it's, it's impossible to have a group delusion like this. 500 people all saw him at the same time they all heard him. It is overwhelming evidence. It is so striking historically that the late Jewish scholar Pincus Lapid, who had every reason not to believe it, followed the evidence and concluded it's true based on the historical evidence that God of Israel raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Are you in a place where you will be willing to be open to the evidence and follow it where it leads? I find some people, they're like, well, Here's the thing. Some of the things that Christians do drive me nuts. I could never become a Christian because of that. You know what? I'm a Christian and some of the things Christians do drives me nuts. 
But if you will follow the evidence of the resurrection, and if you come to believe it, as I have, I promise you, all that other difficulty will fade. Because it is so centrally important. Do you understand that? That, that, that if this is a myth, it's not just a myth, it's a cruel myth. Because it misleads people. And we should all sell this building and go over to Arrowhead right now and start playing golf. But if it's true, it is not mildly interesting. It is not moderately important. It is not maybe someday I'll think about that if I have time, but I can't really be bothered. No, it is massively important. It changes the entire way you view your life. Woody Allen said the central driving motivation in all human activity is this constant struggle against death and annihilation. He said it's stupefying. It's terror. Is that where you're going to be with your life? Follow the evidence. Some of you, uh, you don't know how you would follow the evidence. Can I just give you an invitation? If you want to do that at Res, we love to do that. We have a course we call Alpha. It starts 10 days from now. It's free. Nobody's going to pressure you for money, and nobody's going to guilt you for any hard question you ask. You can go deeper in what you already know, and you can ask questions about anything that concerns you. Join us for that if you want to follow that evidence. Now, the encounter. Let's be real, right? The evidence could be mounded up above my head and still unless you have an encounter most people are not going to commit themselves to Jesus Christ now you say what would an encounter look like with a resurrected and risen Savior and I want to let some people here at res tell you what it's been like for them so if you all would come up right now uh, please and, and what we've done here in the last few weeks is we asked people at Res to tell something about their story with Jesus, but do it in a really short way in the length of a tweet, 140 characters. So we called it the Twitter testimony. And then somebody on our staff said, hey, it's a testimony. <laughs> and I wish you wouldn't laugh because that encourages him. Okay. <laughs> so... I've asked these three folks to tell us their testimonies. My name is Andrew. Um, lost and arrogant kid. Came to Christ through study of the Old Testament prophecies in, with a college professor. Um, let's see. Um, should have brought my notes. Then um, slowly transformed into the man I am today. Still have a long way to go. Good morning, I'm Christine. Harsh diagnosis, family deaths, tried to hold it all together. Anger, fear, tears. Day by day, he is slowly warming my heart and teaching what grace is. Hi church, I'm Grace. A broken family left me broken and needy. But in church, I found peace, stability, and a new vision for how to live my life. Jesus has helped me and loved me every day. Can we just thank them for their telling that story? Thank you guys so much. And now I want to introduce you to Dawn. Uh, Dawn's been on a, a journey in her own life and her faith, 
And last night, she chose to renew her baptismal vows here at Resurrection. And I've asked her to just take two or three minutes and tell kind of what her story has been. So, Dawn. Thank you. Good morning. I grew up in a family that was affected by alcoholism. As the oldest daughter of six children, I carried the burden of many family responsibilities as a young adolescent burdened by the disease of alcoholism and its effects on our family. During my junior high years, I was given a Bible from a friend that had the sinner's prayer on the inside cover. As I recited the prayer over and over, I realized I had been talking to God for years as a child to help get me through traumatic family situations. I realized my faith began and I knew I wanted more of him. I could feel God's presence and I wanted to pursue my faith, but my parents were lapsed Catholics and they forbade me to have anything to do with any church. My father took the stance that the church was only interested in his money. I developed a sense that I was not worthy of knowing God, but that other people were. Our family situation left me feeling a lot of shame and unworthiness. When I became an adult, my goal in life was to get away from my family. But because my relational abilities were broken, I created my own chaos throughout my adult years. I suffered through two failed marriages. My children are grown now. I experienced incredible seasons of hardship while I was raising them. At one point, I had to hold down a full-time job, finish my undergrad degree, study and sit for the CPA exam, and complete my MBA, all while living under orders of protection and court dates with my children's father. But I was determined to grow in my career and to take care of myself and my children, to be self-sufficient. But my own personal self-sufficiency was difficult to achieve because my potential for relationships was low, and my purpose in life, it seemed, was to just take care of other people, and then life would be over. I felt like a shell of a person. I was scared because I was crumbling, and I fell into a pit of exhaustion and loneliness and insignificance. During this time, I attended several non-denominational churches, but was never able to connect and did not sense the familiar brokenness that had plagued my life. I felt different. A little more than a year ago, a wonderful Christian counselor suggested I seek out prayer at Church of the Resurrection. She explained that the trauma I had experienced in my life could be healed by bringing the presence of Jesus into my suffering. I know now that Jesus was with me under that piano when I was a little girl and I was hiding from my drunken dad, and he's with me now no matter what I face. My fear of life and people has greatly dissipated because of my prayer times here, and I now have a sense of how to invite God's presence into any situation I face, whether it is at work or in a personal situation. I have had the desire to read God's word more, and I feel drawn back to this church. I sense others that I encounter at Church of the Resurrection are on a personal healing journey as I am. And I also feel a sense of honesty within its leadership. This is the first church that I'm not afraid of attending alone because I don't feel alone here. 
My testimony in the past was about caring for others. I'm blessed to say that my own personal healing testimony finally begins now. Thank you, Dawn. You've honored us by sharing that. Thank you. What will it be for you, friends? You have one life. What comes after? Is it nothing? Is it an impersonal joining with some cosmic flow? Or is it through faith in Jesus Christ, personal life and love? Jesus knows you. He calls you by name. He went through everything he went through and rose from the grave so that you could have personal life and love. And not just something to look forward to in the future, but as you heard from these courageous people, something that can start to change your life today. Would you join me in prayer? Come, risen Lord Jesus, and encounter these people gathered here. Walk among them. Call their name. Open their hearts. Draw them back to you. Do your amazing work. Thank you, Lord. Some of you, you felt like you were too far gone that your life has been uh, just beyond what God would want or could do something with. And he's here to tell you, no, that's not true. I take the dead and I bring it back to life. As we're in a moment of prayer and our eyes are closed, can I ask you to do something physical with your hand? And that is this. If you have heard and accepted my invitation to open yourself to the evidence, to open yourself to the possibility of an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, would you just hold your hand kind of out in front of you straight up and down with your palm perpendicular to the ground? Just do that in front of you right now. Just as a physical way of saying, I don't fully believe yet, but I'm open. I'm going to take the step to follow the evidence where it leads. And I am willing to let the Lord Jesus encounter me. Would you place your hand in front of you like that? So I can, I can see it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Father. And now some of you are like, you know what? I, I'm ready. I'm here this morning. Like, what does a guy have to do to, to follow Jesus and get started? Would you hold your palm straight up? Just hold it out in front of you, that palm straight up, as a, as a physical way of saying, I want to start. Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Father, 
in this moment as you're working in and among your people here, would you draw them especially close? Would you open their hearts to your life-giving truth? And would you, would you reveal yourself? We ask this in your holy name. Amen.